0: Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, and I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Did I hit the new QA? Boom! I, did right I, there. Now it, Now okay, that. Now it. Okay. All right. Uh, we've got it. We got a very discussion. I'm very much looking forward to coming up with John Ward, a good friend of mine's written this this phenomenally interesting book about the uh, the 1980 Democratic primary. Uh, you know, Teddy Kennedy versus Jimmy Carter and uh it it's it's a, it's just trust me some great stories and a, and, a, and a really interesting book highly relevant to the current situation i would argue but first uh we've got some some news to to get through uh I, I wanted to touch on what seemed to be um a significant moment uh here in washington when we saw uh the intelligence agencies release their threat assessment and then uh, testify uh, before congress about this and what was significant and what captured all the headlines is you had Uh, The nation's intelligence chiefs, the the, the DNI, the the director of the CIA, uh, come out on, on really the key challenges of our time and seem to stake out positions that were, if not diametrically opposed, certainly not in sync with the president of the United States.
1: ISIS, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China. All of those are areas where the president is saying one thing and his intelligence agencies, his intelligence advisors, the Trump administration's intelligence community is saying publicly in front of Congress something much, much different. It was a stark repudiation of Trumpism, whether it was meant to be or not. Uh, To me, it was the clearest indication yet of why you see this split emerging in the Republican foreign policy establishment on Capitol Hill, because the people who are hearing this stuff directly – the people that consume the intelligence briefings and intelligence reports besides the people at the White House, when they're talking directly to the director of the CIA or the director of national intelligence or the director of the FBI, they're getting an entirely different portrait about the threats that are, uh, that, that are posed to the United States right now, up to and including the threat or lack thereof on the U.S.-Mexico border, which somehow really didn't come up. So, so I, you know, I, I, a couple of things on this. One is I,
0: I think this is actually a sign of strength of our institutions. First of all, the, the, the intel chiefs, nor their report actually criticizes the president right. on anything. So so we should point that out. It's not like they came out and said the president's wrong and X, Y, and Z. It's just that their assessment of the underlying facts, they did not offer policy prescriptions. But their assessments, which they don't do, that's not their job. They, they give they give the data and the information to those that make policy. But their assessments were quite different. North Korea, uh, we, we believe that they do not intend to give up their nuclear weapons. The president has at various times suggested they really – that they already, already have. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, ISIS is defeated. The president has walked that back a bit. Uh, the, the, the report makes it clear that ISIS is still very much uh, a, a threat. Uh, you mentioned the border, which is interesting in, in a way of, of omission. They don't mention a wall. Again, their job is not to prescribe policy, but still uh, n- no mention of that. And But more significantly, they don't mention um, a, a threat from, from our southern border until – halfway through their report, it's not one of their top issue areas. Right. And it's we just shut
1: down the government over it, yeah. Yes,
0: yes, and 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 the president has said he may declare a national emergency over this, and you can imagine if the intel guys were to, if you were to follow their description of the current threat environment and you were saying what were the areas we might declare an emergency on, it probably wouldn't make the top ten. Right. Um, so uh, the president responded on Twitter, So, which I guess is not, entirely surprising uh that the response came on twitter because actually the this happened this happened yesterday um and we didn't hear any real response from the white house and you read all these the front page i mean everybody's asking and there's basically almost a shrug uh from the white house in part because none of these positions from the intelligence community are really new i mean they've they've been at odds with the way the president describes the world uh I mean, since he was a candidate and right. even and it didn't change when he installed his own people at the head of, you know, Dan Coats or, or Gina Haspel. Um, but the president did respond. And this kind of confirms that there's a little bit of a we're not quite in in, in sync here. He actually said um, perhaps intelligence should go back to school. He's suggesting that his intel chief should go back to school. Because they don't know as much about these things as he does.
1: So this raises a couple of questions to me, John. And you, your esteemed perch as the, you know, senior uh, chief, um, Pooh Grand White House yes, correspondent. I'm chief, sure you can chief. you can answer this very easily as the chief White House correspondent. Is the president hearing from different sources that tell him different things? Is he got? Does he have other inputs, in other words, than than the intel chiefs that he is prioritizing ahead of them? Or is he taking this information and then either for for just public consumption reasons or for just his view of of smart policy, putting them into policy prescriptions that are almost at odds exactly with what one might assume you would do if you knew these things.
0: I mean, he he is he does have different inputs. His inputs are not simply from the intelligence world. Uh, he hears from people who have have a, have staked their careers out of – uh, at various points, being skeptical and, uh, uh, and, if not critical of the intelligence world, then I would put John Bolton on on, sure. on that list. Yeah, um, but I also believe talking to people that have advised the president on weighty matters like this, describe him as not particularly persuadable with a percent with a presentation of facts. He has a worldview. He sees things. And it's hard to move him. A, a phrase I heard, I, I can't give you the name, but a phrase I heard from somebody um, who left the administration uh, uh, last year uh, but advised him on, on, on these matters is the president can be or is impervious to fact. Mm. Which is kind of a, uh, not all that reassuring, reassuring but, but I also want, I, I think we have to be careful not to overstate the I mean it is an amazing thing. So it is absolutely astounding to see to hear uh, the intelligence chiefs really provide assessments that are that, that that are that are very much at odds. But they're not like I said they don't come out and say the president's dead wrong on right. this. And they're North Korea, which is which is perhaps the, the most glaring one because North Korea they say that we 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 assess that that they believe that a nuclear capability is essential to their survival, and therefore they are not going to. Uh, give it up, and the president's about to do his second meeting with Kim Jong Un, and obviously believes that this could be the big legacy and and could be what he achieves. Uh, so Gina Haspel uh, was asked about this um, during during the the testimony on this, and you know, so does, does, what what is basically what does this mean? Again, they don't they don't prescribe policy, but the president's engaged in this dialogue, and the intelligence community is saying that basically almost saying the dialogue could be fruitless, one way of reading it, because we don't think that they are ever going to give up their their nuclear capability. But listen to what she said about it. I think our analysts would assess that they value uh, the dialogue with the United States, and we do do see indications that Kim Jong-un is trying to uh, navigate uh, a path toward uh, some kind of better future for the North Korean people. So that doesn't sound like uh, the CIA director saying that that, that this dialogue is a mistake. Here, let me play another clip. It is uh, positive that we have managed to engage them in a dialogue. Um, they have taken some voluntary measures to close a site, dismantle a site, but ultimately the objective is to lessen that threat by getting them to declare their program and then ultimately dismantle the program. So... You know, to take it out of CIA speak, uh, she's saying, you know, ultimately the goal is a lot more than what we've seen. But what we've seen is not insignificant and not without value.
1: Sure. And and, and I wonder if the president's public statements in that sense are aimed at maybe a North Korean audience that he knows – that flattery might be working with him, and that even if he's assessing things publicly differently than his uh, than his intelligence agencies would, that there's a larger plan at, at, at play there. That it's not simple blindness to fact. That it is something. There's something else going on when he is saying these things. Maybe similar on his on his statements on ISIS. Who knows? I mean, it's it's hard to square. You actually really can't square what he has said that we've defeated ISIS and we're coming home with what Dan Coates said um, at, at this at this briefing or. What the facts are, as has become obvious uh, in ensuing weeks, uh, and, and we've seen Capitol Hill begin to step up on that and begin to clip him. Mitch McConnell, hardly a foe of the president, among those who are saying that, uh, that there needs to be a strong sense of resolve about the need to defeat ISIS, present tense, or going forward, and not to get out of Afghanistan, not to get out of Afghanistan, critically as well. Uh, I, but, but it, it, to me, when you look at these things, it, you have to see it as a bit of a window into the president's thinking and, and, and begin to divine how he could be coming to conclusions that are that different because. Right, these intelligence chiefs didn't go there trying to say the president's a liar uh, or the president's wrong. That's not their job. But they, it was just a much different assessment of the world. So, uh, before we get to our
0: conversation with John Ward, I have one other topic from the week, and there's, there's much to talk about. Uh, we'll, we'll leave our discussions of shutdowns and negotiations and all that for, for, for another day. But I, 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 I do want to get to um, the, the big political announcement on 60 Minutes. Uh, Howard Schultz, uh, founder, uh, CEO emeritus of, of Starbucks. Uh, declaring his uh his potential independent run, Rick, you've been kind of critical of this uh, but can i can i can I point out please. Bef- b- before we go and we talk about how you know this is a this is an effort that will not pan out this is an effort that ultimately probably helps only one person, and that's Donald Trump if it takes away anti trump votes i mean uh, can we, can I just unpack a couple of these things please go for it first of all. Politics is a little hard to predict, as you know, as a political yes. director. I don't know that we should jump to the conclusion that Howard Schultz, if he decides to go through the run, ultimately uh, hurts Trump. I mean, I know that's the conventional wisdom. And there's a lot of good reasons. Helps to Trump. That, you, the yeah, yeah, conventional yeah, wisdom right, is it helps, 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 yeah. helps Trump. I'm sorry. Helps Trump. And that's why Democrats are so outraged yeah. and people are wanting to sure. boycott Starbucks and all this stuff. Um, do you remember a guy we – had, we had a billionaire run. Do you remember this, Ross Perot? Ross Perot, yeah. And the conventional wisdom, and even see it in some of the write-ups on on Schultz, is that oh my God, you know, uh, Perot uh, hurt hurt Bush, the incumbent president, um, uh, because Perot was a little bit more right of center, you know, Schultz is a little left. So he hurt the Republican and helped elect uh, helped elect uh, Bill Clinton. I do
1: not think that the data supports that. In at all, I think you're right. I would I would argue back Ralph Nader and as a candidate on the left who um, not want, a billionaire. Do you, do you want to argue that he didn't hurt Al Gore in Florida? Well, instance? the
0: margins were the okay. margins were certainly tight. And, <laughs> it was um, a tight race.
1: It was like there was a toss up. Um, but Nader was not running as a centrist, right? But but, but okay. Uh, but Sorry. but I'll, I'll, I will I will grant you that. I will grant you that. Uh, and, and I do think I, Nate Silver's made this argument. I think pretty well in the last couple of days, and and we all respect our colleague Nate at Five Thirty Eight. And I think that the when, when you picture a couple of months from now or a year from now, the potential for a three way debate stage where, um, say, it's Donald Trump and Howard Schultz and Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren, the idea of two white billionaires going at it uh, may help the third candidate. Totally, totally fine. How about if it's Bloomberg? Why don't we go all go billionaires? All, all, all billionaires with billionaires. roots in New York. I, I, I think it's an open. I think it is an unanswerable question. as about who he hurts more. And I think well, some of the some of the media reaction and uh, and the, the the Twitter reaction is uh, against a candidate who may not have a lane at all. I mean, that's part of the question. Is like where, where, who is Howard Schultz really? Uh, really going why to. Why is everybody declaring
0: that now? We don't know if he has a lane. I agree with that.
1: We don't know. I we mean, don't I had know. somebody
0: tell me that, that we had a guy who's literally on Mount Rushmore, chiseled into granite, <laughs> who tried to run as an independent and couldn't do it. And that guy's on Mount Rushmore.
1: Yeah. Well, Howard um, Schultz might think he'd like to belong there, too, or the latte version.
0: OK, but I mean, but honestly, I mean, we, we
1: don't, we don't you know, know. It's It was a long time ago. Uh,
0: you know, um, I mean, and I'll tell you 1992 one, was a long time ago. I mean, 1996
1: was, you know. was a while ago. I, I'll tell you one thing a, a smart Democrat mentioned to me in the context of all of this this week. That ultimately, the Democrats may need to thank Howard Schultz because what he has done, is force at least a discussion Medicare of, the, for all. of where the Democratic Party is yeah. headed with Medicare for all, which with the, the, the Green New Deal, with a 70% tax cut on the rich. Maybe the party wants to be there. Maybe the party wants to be there. But as Kamala Harris demonstrated in otherwise, I think, very good, good rollout, do you want to lead with banning insurance companies as a, as a piece of that? He's out there calling that out. He's out there calling out the idea of that 70% uh, tax on upper income earners. If Democrats want to be there, let them be there. But they should at least figure out the language around that and have an open discussion. Because as of now, there's really no one inside the Democratic Party who's willing to make that argument to say, you know what, you can't have free college tuition right. for everyone. You can't have uh, Medicare for all. You can't just soak the rich and pay for everything. You got to pay for these programs somehow. And Howard Schultz, for better or worse, has been making that argument pretty vociferously in the last couple of days.
0: Well, this may be a pointless exercise. He may have no chance. He may ultimately not decide to run. I just don't I'm struck by the vitriol of the response Uh, and, I I mean, the the, the way he has been brutally attacked uh, for having the temerity to suggest that he may want to run as an independent and that it may be time in this country to have an alternative that is not Democrat and not Republican. I'd say, you know, why, why don't we... Hear the guy out. It's a free country, and if he's
1: got, it, if he has a constituency, then he will find it. Uh, I think the the there are a lot of a lot of this is complicated by the fact that you had people that were previously partisans, either Democrat or Republican, who've signed on with him.
0: This is interesting. So, so yeah, uh, we we have. I mean, the, the name that of course jumped out to, to me was
1: Bill Burton. Yeah, former Obama aide. Yeah,
0: former not just former Obama aide. He's one of the. I mean, one of the. He's one of the, the first Obama one hires. One of the first and Obama and hires. All the and, way through uh, the White House years.
1: Yeah. Um. And and he's
0: working for him, and so is. Uh, Steve, Steve Schmidt S- Steve Schmidt and, and Steve Schmidt, who uh, we all know is a as a as a former uh, Bush Cheney guy and um, McCain somebody and who worked uh, uh, you know as a senior strategist for for the McCain campaign and somebody who is a card carrying member of the never Trump movement um and I know that there have been people saying, oh, you know, Schmidt and he's just trying to make money off this first of all, two things that I know I've known Steve Schmidt for a long time doing just fine financially <laughs> I, I, I i i and and i and i and i and i've never he, of those of the kind of never trump i mean this guy this guy detests donald trump and i don't think that he would be getting involved with something that 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 he thought was simply uh going to be in you know something that was going to assure a Trump re-election, and by the way, I'm not—I don't think Burton's in that category no, either. No, no now, Maybe no. they're cynical. You know, guns for hire. I've known both those guys. I don't think either one of them really fit in that category.
1: Yeah, I—I I, I would agree with you on both. I know both as well, and I, I do think though some of the some of the vitriol is aimed at that perception. Maybe it's jealousy yes. or resentment or you know the you know, the higher gun uh, sense. But look, Schultz, he'll have his chance here. He 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 has enough money that it really doesn't matter what everyone says on Twitter about him. He can buy his way essentially onto the ballot in 50 states if he wants. He can appear; it's possible to do that in the United States. You can get signatures. You can you can put yourself on the ballot. It's hard to do, but if you pay enough money, you can get it done. I think everyone would agree that. So there's no one blocking that. He's decided to circumvent the two party system. We've talked about this for a long time, as you mentioned. You can go back a century. No one's been able to do it. Doesn't mean it can't be done. Uh, is this the message? Again, that's for voters to decide. Go out there and decide. I'm totally open on all of those all of those things. I don't think he is impressed many people as a tremendous candidate in the early going. I think no. his references to the, quote, silent majority is probably an bizarre. unfortunate historical comparison. Yeah. I think our listeners would probably recognize that uh, pretty quickly, calling Kamala Harris's position on insurance not American. Again, not really where you want to go, uh, but it's a free exchange of ideas. He's going to get a very good sense of what the the reality of the political universe and the puntitocracy is like, and if he so, wants to do it, he does it.
0: So can, can I ask you a question, because you're, you're a political director and you, you know this stuff. Um, I, I I've seen cycle after cycle where you can make the argument this is the time when a third party yeah. could emerge. Um, certainly, the last one where you had yeah. two um, deeply polarized, deeply flawed uh, candidates running against each other as the major major party standard bearers. Um, I, I remember one guy who started who who got elected on a on a newish party, but it wasn't a brand new party. Um, 1860. Who was that? The guy that ran against? Uh,
1: yeah, he's, he's on. A, he's on our currency somewhere. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so the the Republican Mount Party. As well. uh, yeah, he's also on Mount Rushmore. Yeah,
0: um, you know, was really the last time we had uh, uh, a successful uh, new new party uh, win the presidency uh, in extraordinary circumstances. But what, what 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 strikes me is that if there is to be this movement towards a third party, does it really start at the top? Mm. Or I mean, why 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 yeah. have we seen? No real independence win in congressional races. I mean I know we've seen people call themselves independent, Angus King or Bernie Sanders. They're not independents. They're Democrats. Um, But why has there been no like groundswell? If if, if the parties are so deeply unpopular and deeply flawed – why have we not seen that at at a lower level? I mean, is it really going to happen? <laughs> you know, at the at the presidency first?
1: It's a great question, and 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 I think you you look back at the places, the handful of places that have elected independents is usually based on quirky circumstances. Jesse Ventura was his right. you know, kind of his own thing and his own brand. Um, you, you, you know, go go right through uh, people like Angus King, who's basically a Democrat. A Democrat. He's and, a Democrat. Bernie I mean, Sanders, on. who's running run before and may run again for as the a Democratic Democrat. nomination. I mean, so on. it's 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 rare that you get. A true, you know, true independent who's able to break through well, on that. that. Tr- third party. Third party I mean, at all. Are, That's right. They, they just they haven't won. I mean, the
0: Reform Party was the last time this was even tried, and it was an abysmal Right. Failure.
1: That's right. Speaking of Jesse Ventura. But uh, but yeah, I hadn't thought of this before, John, but you, you make a, a compelling point about Mount Rushmore. Um, remind me what party George Washington was was, was a member <laughs> of. So three out of the four have yeah. some, you know, either independent, yeah. non-party. Yeah, the only or, party lackey
0: is Jefferson. I mean, right. You know,
1: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He, he may get a pass. But but um, maybe that's the way you really make history. But it, People have asked the question of Schultz. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't view a run for Senate or governor, or anything else as, as the right step for him. He he believes that the the presidency is there, and if you have the money to do it, you can you can get on the ballot. You can hire advisors and a top notch team, and he's got a very big team already to potentially do it. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch because I don't think even he or his team were prepared with for the, the onslaught, the ferocity. Oh my god! Uh, the, the, at, at which he has been been called out over this. It has been a a rough couple of days. Can he withstand it? We'll see. Right.
0: All right. Well, we have to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking to John Ward.
1: When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast.
0: All right. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by John Ward, author of Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the fight that broke the Democratic Party. Uh, John Ward is senior political uh, correspondent for Yahoo and a longtime friend of mine. Welcome to Powerhouse Politics.
2: This is exciting. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, well, c- congrats on this book. And I, we, we were I, just joking that uh, that I feel like I've been talking to you about this book for about a decade, but I guess it's only six years. Yeah, uh, so, not so, quite a decade. So so congrats on finally getting it done. Two-thirds John, of a decade. I, uh, <laughs> um, um, uh, but, but truly a, tra- uh, uh, a terrific story. Um, and I, I want to just just start with the, the the big picture of what brought you to writing about this 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 is this is the greatest inner party primary you know challenge to a uh to to, to a sitting president that we have seen we saw you know buchanan uh, go against george hw bush in 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 92 this is bigger right this 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 one uh, is, is just a phenomenal story why did you decide to spend the last six years of your life working on this
2: yeah. I mean if you're going to compare – just as a prelude to that, if you're going to compare Buchanan to Kennedy, the two challenges, I think you could like – it's hard to, to come up with a comparison for Kennedy now because he was such a huge figure. But the Buchanan thing would be not in terms of ideology but in terms of significance. It would be like a Larry Hogan challenging Trump this coming year I think at this point. Yeah. Just not not that significant. So – I got interested in this uh, back in 2013. I was at a DNC meeting. I ran into Elaine K. Mark and Jeff Berman. Berman was Obama's delegate counter, really interesting guy. Elaine was on the stage at the convention, and she started, they just, I don't remember why, but they started talking about the scene on the stage at the convention. In, in
0: the 1980 Democratic convention. Yeah, yeah. When,
2: when it was unclear,
0: I mean, was, was Kennedy going to come down? Was there going to be a big right. moment of unity? I mean, the the, the bitterness and the, and the, battle went right to that moment and beyond as as well i think
2: that was probably the most humiliating and embarrassing moment of of jimmy carter's life so explain it describe what 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 that moment was all about kennedy had given his the dream will never die speech two nights before that and that was a remarkable moment in political history it's one of the greatest speeches in political politics for the last half century at least greatest convention speech of our Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. And um, but he wasn't the nominee. (laughs) Jimmy (laughs) Carter was the nominee. And Carter gives his speech two nights later. And afterwards, the speech is kind of a dud. Afterwards, they're waiting for Kennedy to get there. And Carter really wants to get this photo of them with their hands raised in the air together. So Kennedy takes 20 minutes to get there because he's at the Waldorf Astoria rather than in the hall. And the applause dies down after a few minutes. So they start pulling up every cabinet secretary up to the stage to try to keep it some applause going. It's really it's it's a it's a slog to even do that. Kennedy finally gets there and the place goes nuts. And so he goes up and shakes hands with Carter, but won't do the hands in the air thing. And Carter keeps at it for like five, six minutes. Kennedy circulates the stage. He goes around, shakes hands with everybody. Carter shakes hands with him like three or four more times, and one time he actually gets him close. He like starts the handshake at like shoulder level to try to move it up, and, um, and Kennedy won't do it. So the people I was talking to at this meeting said that Kennedy was drunk on the stage, and they described it basically as Jimmy Carter chasing Kennedy around the stage on national television. Um, Carter himself also claims that Kennedy was drunk. Bob Shrum claims he wasn't, so... Because um, yeah, you, you, you interviewed
0: Carter on yeah. this,
2: and, 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 and he told you. He told me that in 2015. He also said this in his journal at the time. So it's not as if he has come late aware. to the story. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they started telling me the story, and I thought, wow, I don't really know much about that. That's crazy. And it's an interesting underbelly of the 1980s story, which everybody just associates with Ronald Reagan. And then I ran into Anita Dunn a couple of minutes later at the same meeting and she talked about the way that it split the party for a decade. And I thought, OK, there's cinematic sort of detail there and there's scope, historical scope to it. And it doesn't seem – and as I looked into it, nobody had written a good narrative about it. And I just thought, OK, well, this is going to be good.
0: So you have the, the sitting president,
2: deeply unpopular president. Yeah. 19 um, percent approval rating in the fall – of seventy nine, brutal, um, worse than Nixon and Watergate, and
0: you have the maybe the biggest figure in American politics, certainly in Democratic politics, yeah. challenging him, uh, Ted Kennedy, somebody who had uh, been encouraged to run four years earlier, eight years earlier, even, yeah, um, and so he, it 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 goes down to the wire. What what I help me understand, I can understand the the Carter bitterness. Which is still there to this day, mm-hmm. seen in, in 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 your discussions with him, um, because this you know that he was challenged to the sitting president. He rallied behind your presidents, your right. party. Um, what is the what was at root of the Kennedy bitterness? Because the Kennedy bitterness has lingered on. I mean, it's lingered on t- to this day among his you know the Kennedy family uh, towards towards Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Uh, to, was was the was the was there an expectation that he should have just stepped aside
2: because because <laughs> Teddy was going to come in? What, what 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 is the root of that bitterness? Jerry Raffstein was Carter's media consultant at that time. He's uh, still lives in D.C. and he came to Politics and Prose the other night and got up to the mic and spoke a few times. It was great. He um he says that there are Kennedy member me, members of the family in that world who still won't talk to him because he ran these ads in Pennsylvania uh, during the primary there in April when Kennedy was starting to make a comeback. So the way that they knocked that comeback down or back a little bit was by running ads, raising questions about Kennedy's character, which was aimed at two things, his sort of, you know, philandering uh, personal life and chappaquiddick, obviously. And I think, there's anger that they were picking at that scab which is which is correct me if if you think this is wrong i think that's the most shameful episode in kennedy family history yeah, without and, a doubt and, and, and there's
0: a political cartoon from the time um which shows uh jimmy carter saying i'm not going to talk about Chappaquiddick. right and then he says that, that's
2: spelled c h a p I mean the the lobotomy of Rosemary is shameful but it's not – it doesn't It doesn't result in the death of an innocent person. So I think there's that and there's just the fact that Kennedys don't like to lose and Carter did beat him. I mean when I talked to Tom Donilon about this whole chapter in history, he was a key aide to Carter. And he was still upset, regretful I guess, that Carter didn't come out of the convention there – Seen as a giant killer. That was his term. And I kind of I told Tom, I said, well, he it's odd because he actually did defeat the giant. He did beat Ted Kennedy. But I think in large part because of what happened on the stage at that at that final night, I think he just came out of the convention looking pathetic. So, John Ward, th-
1: this was, of course, a very bitter, bitter battle, very personal battle, and it was ideological. Um, it was attitudinal. Uh, it was also very personal. These two men who came from such different backgrounds, as you portray. I mean, I found some of the most fascinating parts of the book re- reading about the parallel lives that these two men. Uh, made, uh, lived, and Carter expecting Kennedy way more than Kennedy even knew about Carter or cared about Carter, and then suddenly the guy's president, and his big chance in his what turned out to be Kennedy's last big chance was when Carter was president. But how has that lingered in the Democratic Party? You talked about this um, in the context of a decade of the party breaking apart and, until Bill Clinton comes back, but I feel like you can take it forward right to today and, and trace some of the splits that were laid bare in 1980 to what we see in 2019.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you talk about their backgrounds, that was the the coolest thing about the research because I went in attracted to the to the narrative that we just discussed. But when I when I learned more about where these guys came from, and if you just pick it up in the bookstore, I actually did a, I put a lot of work into making the photos um portray this in a way that was also moving in a, in a narrative style, but also contrasting them, because the first two photos are Kennedy as a young boy in London with his family; his father's the ambassador to the, to the UK. And right above that is a photo of Jimmy Carter at age nine or so uh, on the family farm in Southwest Georgia, with no shirt on and no shoes, and it's jaw dropping in terms of a contrast. So that was really fun. When you fast forward to today in terms of the way that the split between these two guys has continued, I guess I would kind of – if you're going to do it through the 2020 Democratic primary, a lot of the energy in the, in the party is with the wing of the party that Kennedy was representing then, which is a more full-throated liberalism, um, pretty progressive on government spending. Kennedy at that time was uh, socially liberal, moving the party left on gay rights. Um, Carter – and I think probably the way they responded to inflation was one of the clearer contrasts as well as health care. Kennedy wanted national health care. Carter put that on the back burner. And when it came to inflation, Carter's response was we need to reduce government spending because that's fueling inflation. Kennedy's response was we need to help people who are being hurt by inflation, the poor and the middle class, by spending government money to alleviate their suffering. So obviously the energy in the Democratic Party is on the left. Most of the Democratic candidates for president seem to be in that wing. But there's at least two I can think of that are that are fairly prominent. Biden, obviously, is from the the more Carter wing, which is a more moderate wing. And I think maybe somebody like Sherrod Brown might be as well, because he is throwing some cold water on some of the more idealistic
1: government. Medicare for all. Right.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Michael Bloomberg, if he runs as a Democrat, may also be in, in that world. I, I want to talk more about Biden's. So one, one of the great things about this book, to my mind, and I'm sure it was fun for you, is you interviewed some of the the absolute titans of democratic politics as part of the research for this. Most of them were really young in 1980, interns or really low-level right. policy people. Uh, and and then you know, it wasn't until Clinton or Gore or Dukakis or some right. later campaign that they became, or Obama, they became who they are now. But Joe Biden was a United States senator in 1980. Um, he uh he would run for president himself just 8 years later, but he was he he was young, but he was a United States senator. elected? 72. Yeah. Yeah, and so he was, you know, he was late 30s at that point. Um, so he was relatively young, and he had a long career ahead of him. But he was among those that are forced to make this gut wrenching decision between a lot of ways the heart of the Democratic Party and maybe the head of the president. And you had a chance to talk to him, and you don't recount this fully in the book, but um, you've, you've written about it online, about the interview that you did with, with uh, Vice President Biden. He was still vice president at the time. Uh, the, the 2016 campaign had not yet happened. But um, obviously, people knew about Biden and a lot of the, the, the figures around that he ended up did not running then. Uh, the the lessons that you draw from that and, and specifically where his mind went when you asked him about this split, I think is absolutely fascinating.
2: Yeah, he talked about um, Liz War- Elizabeth Warren frequently, um, unprompted. He just brought her up three or four times over and over throughout that conversation. She was saying she wasn't going to run. I think most people kind of took her at her word, but you never can really fully do that with a politician so by whether or not biden thought he was going to run and if he was going to run whether he thought she would be in the primary he obviously was sensitive to the critiques she had been leveling against him going back to the early 2000s she hit him really hard in around 2002 over a bankruptcy bill that he helped get passed or helped support because um he's from delaware banks are there Um, credit card companies are there, a lot of corporations are there and she felt like he – she framed it as him uh, hurting women who she argued um, are often the people who suffer the most uh, or who need the the most help in terms of bankruptcy, especially single moms. So she framed it as him basically attacking women uh, at the behest of large corporations back when she was a Harvard uh, professor. And that was obviously still sticking in his crawl. Um, but yeah, when he talked about Kennedy and Carter, he said, I was Ted Kennedy's friend. But I told him early on this is not going to work because I think he sensed that the, go- that the country was moving in a conservative direction then. Uh, even the New York Times op-ed page or editorial page uh, wrote the day after Kennedy's convention speech that his liberalism was actually out of step with the country. That's not the kind of thing you expect from the New York Times – Editorial page, but there clearly was, you know, you see it in the election of Reagan because of civil rights and the way that a lot of the South was angry about that. Um, And it's not just the South. I found this interesting as well. Tom Edsel and his wife Mary's book, Chain Reaction, talks about how a lot of the reaction, a lot of the move away from the Republic, the Democrats in the Rust Belt and the Midwest uh, among white ethnics was also based on race um but because of all that because of just the upheaval of the 60s and 70s and uh inflation and energy crises there was a there was a desire for for order and for a more conservative uh direction uh,
0: i i would argue that ultimately ted kennedy is the one that 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 you know kind of be, became the took over the uh, over the democratic party uh it's a great point and, and and it's interesting in terms of the presidential nominees he he didn't endorse bill clinton but he used the uh the, the kennedy ex, the kennedy excuse which was a which was a great one which has been used by others which is if there's somebody from my own state running i have to endorse that person so we endorsed songas even though he was far yeah, from a songas right. person but he favorite it, son basically. it was his way of basically um you know staying out of it yeah um but but i i, I would argue that it was ted kennedy's Brought like almost single handedly brought John Kerry's uh, nomination back from yeah. the dead. Interesting. Um, uh, and I would also argue that he was absolutely critical in Barack Obama beating yes uh, beating Hillary Clinton.
2: Now you're making me wish I had included that. In <laughs> maybe that's maybe, a maybe, great point. This, this, this
0: will be for the, paper <laughs> for the paperback. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no um, kidding. But but I want to I want to ask you about. Um, we should know
1: that John's actually taking notes on this. He will include. It. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> I, I I want to uh, ask you um uh, about your interactions with Jimmy Carter find him, find that fascinating uh, what what was it when did you first approach him? What was his reaction to wanting to go through this? Because you also very interesting thing you point out is that this is kind of like if, if you go to the, the Kennedy Center uh, in, 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 in Massachusetts, <laughs> there's just no mention of this That's that had ever happened. This like major yeah. moment in his life is just like not there. Did you think we were um, going
2: to forget? Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not a big part of the Carter Center. Uh, so, so this yeah. is not something that anybody really, that, that any of the major players want to want to talk about and relive. Uh, how did you How did you approach Jimmy Carter? What
2: was his reaction? What were those interactions like? I approached him through Jerry Rafshun, Um and Rafshun was always actually really helpful and enthusiastic about and tell this. us Tell us
0: who who Jerry, Rafshun Jerry was. Jerry
2: was his media consultant who ran those ads in Pennsylvania. Um, he was basically one of his top advisors mm-hmm. as well, along with Ham Jordan, Pat Cadell, and uh, what's the name of the press secretary? I'm forgetting right now. Um, Jody? Jody Powell. Jody. Yeah. So he was part of that inner circle. Um, and so I approached Jerry, uh, probably 2013 or 2014 and it took, you know, till 2015 to get to, to get Carter to agree. And we, we talked in Atlanta and I thought that was really, you know, especially in retrospect, I thought that was pretty big of Carter to do that because this is not, you know, a, a great story for him. Um, the Kennedy people had almost no interest, you know. But
0: what was it? So, 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 you yeah. describe sitting down with, with Jimmy Carter. To, to,
2: it's uh, funny when I walked into the the Carter Center, into his office, he was doing like the movie thing where he stands at the window and looks out,
0: <laughs> right? You know, right, right. and
2: then as you walk in the door, he <laughs> kind of turns, <laughs> and the door closes automatically behind you. <laughs> um, he was he was uh, intense, actually. Uh, very, you know, kind of his eyes are still icy blue, Mm -hmm. um, very, very, very sharp. And, uh, you know, I, I was, how much time did you spend with him? About about a half hour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would have loved to do more. John Alter's down there. John Alter, I don't, do you know this? John Alter is writing the biography of Carter. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's, he's essentially moved to Plains for some time to do that. He's had... Tons and tons of time with Carter, yeah. um, so I would have loved to do that, but it wasn't as a nece- as necessary a part mm-hmm. of this. I just basically needed to get Carter to talk about this, and I'm really glad he talked about Kennedy too. I mean, at the end of the book, we discuss whether or not Kennedy sort of achieved redemption, and he, I think he has mellowed. You know, he still blames Kennedy, but I think he has mellowed in his uh, vitriol to. To, to, towards him for running against him. So I want to
1: talk about the, the current president and the current political situation for a moment. I, I don't think history is going to link Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump through many biographical or, um, or policy stances. Uh, although I would know, Carter's been de- defended Trump publicly a few times against definitely uh, against the best media relationship of the former president. <laughs> that's a great point. I should <laughs> I should make that that's clear. I mean. Yeah, that's a very warm relationship. Um, but y- you do draw some parallels to the, the, the way that that Carter took advantage of the of the system as it existed at the moment, and a lot of people didn't realize how the primary and caucus calendar uh, gave you the opportunity to um, to avoid uh, a brokered convention and a a, 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 yeah. a contested convention. Uh, and he went out there and was kind of a loner in this way. He obviously. Had his own media strategy quite a bit different than Trump. Uh, But like like Carter, Trump's got to worry about a primary challenge. Uh, we had it in our poll at our ABC News Washington Post poll just this week. Two-thirds of Republicans and Republican-leading independents say they want someone other—or sorry, they, they support the president. One-third say they want someone other than the president to be nominated. We've had Howard Schultz um, making noise about his independent bid right now. What are the lessons for you in in how you would successfully challenge a nominee in the modern era when you have the entire party apparatus that— coalesces. The RNC just last week uh, trying to, to make sure that things are are, are perfect for, for Donald Trump. How would you hack that part of the system if you're thinking about, uh, about it based on these lessons of 1980?
2: I think um, one thing to keep in mind is that the early state primaries are going to they've already done this. Like New Hampshire, there were some people who tried to uh, prevent a competitive primary up there and the state party knocked that down. And I think a lot of Two other actually data points on this. A poll last summer in New Hampshire showed about 40 percent of Republicans up there are open to a contested primary. And a poll in Iowa in December showed 60 percent, 63 in fact, of Iowa Republicans are open to a competitive primary. I think the biggest driver of this – I'm curious if you agree with this. But I think a lot of it is just because these states want to remain relevant. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they protect their independence. But these, prim, these early primaries for them are like a, uh, a total bounty for them economically and politically. So that, that's why they want these primaries to stay relevant, right? Um, I think if you're going to – there's two, two things I would say about Trump and a primary. Um, you know, As one New Hampshire Republican put it to me this week, the door is slightly ajar right now. That's not a huge, like, opening. But uh, if Mueller has something that is explosive on Trump, I think the government shutdown episode to to this day, we'll see how it plays out. But I think up until now, the the ground has been sort of tilled a little bit for Trump to to actually lose some real support. He's not there yet, but he, he has been softened up. This shutdown thing has been sort of like a few jabs that have hurt him in a way that he's kind of not been hurt with his base up to this point. Now, who could actually run against him? I don't. The only person I could actually see being successful about him, against him right now in a real way is Nikki Haley. Maybe Marco Rubio. Did you see the news on Nikki Haley, by the way? No. She,
0: uh, she, um, she signed up with uh, Washington Speakers Bureau. They have promised her 50 speeches a year for the next two years. At 200k per speech.
2: Okay, so she's not running. (laughs) 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 I mean, seriously, I don't think you can pull somebody away from that. Um, I mean, maybe. You know, there's there was poll. I think the Iowa poll showed that there was some openness, fair fair degree, uh, to Romney or Rubio. So the key here is that these guys. What America needs is another Romney. Yeah, I mean, it's just like really. But the key here that they – that the point that they made is that these are people who are not seen as never-Trumpers. Uh, Romney is a little bit. But if you he he's ne- a never-Trumper, Trumper, kind of Trumper,
0: Trumper <laughs> not so much Trumper, yeah. very – Right, not as, Rom- often as Romney does. Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> I mean the thing about Nikki Haley is she served under his administration.
0: Yeah. And
2: she could come in and say, I served under this president. Uh, I love him and respect him. But I feel like you they're probably – he's not going to win. Like the Republican Party needs somebody else, so that otherwise you're going to get all these Trump voters who feel like the uh, Never Trump, you know, um, candidate is attacking them personally because that's how politics works in the in the era of tribalism, especially in the area of Trump. Trump voters feel like, oh, you're criticizing Trump, you're criticizing me. Right. Right. Exactly. So I know you have to go,
0: but I want to ask you about one other little 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 thing in here. Um, not not a major part of your book, but but something in an episode I didn't know about. Um, uh, Paul Corbin, who mm-hmm. was uh, kind of a Kennedy loyalist, dirty yeah. trickster, no formal role in the campaign, but a longtime time Kind of guy. a Roger Stone type. Kind character. of a Roger Stone yeah. of a um, – and he um, – uh, was and, and he's a, he was a communist a self-described communist so he wasn't but he ended up working for Reagan because he so detested Jimmy Carter yeah. and you you mentioned this episode where he was accused of basically stealing the debate prep the yeah. Carter debate prep stuff and and delivering him to the to, to, to the Reagan campaign Yeah, which of course reminds me of of the whole episode with uh, with George W Bush and uh, and Gore but what what tell us about about that and
2: about Paul Corbin yeah. and what that was all about Craig Shirley's book actually has a lot He has a whole chapter on Paul Corbin, I think, Um, and yeah, Corbin was not—I guess he was a communist, but he wasn't super ideological. He went for Reagan, right? (laughs) I mean, he just was—you know—he—he. I think he took it so personally on on behalf of the Kennedys that that Carter beat him, that he went and worked for Reagan. There was a a Senate uh, inquiry into this. So, so he was accused. What was he accused of? This was he was stealing accused this? of taking the the Carter. I think he was in the White House meeting with somebody, and he ended up pilfering the, the <laughs> prep book from the White House and taking it and giving it to the Reagan folks. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm trying to remember. Did he ever admit it? No, no. So, but there but, was but, just. But there surely, was, there who was, was a, a Reagan guy said it happened. Yeah, there was a Senate inquiry, like in '82. Yeah, and I think they concluded that this likely happened. Yeah, yeah. So the guy who's like devoted his life to helping uh, uh,
0: Ted Kennedy uh, is politically as far left as you can get. Yeah, goes to do everything he can to help Reagan because of of how personal. I mean, it's just it, it, that just encapsulates how yeah, personal that race was.
2: It does. I you know it's really interesting to wonder about what would have happened if Carter had somehow beat Reagan. I mean, it's yeah. it's a hard thing to argue, but if he had successfully moved the Democratic Party to the to the more of a middle position. Do you then, even if he loses? Well, no, if he wins, do you have, you know, the Mondale-Dukakis sort of wilderness period, or does the Democratic Party actually nominate people more in Carter's mold before? Well, they you get don't to have Clinton? a Ra-
0: you don't have a Reagan revolution if that happens. Right. So there's a whole. Well, yeah. or Kennedy anyway, and Ford. so um, right. so so John, right. what's That's what's point. what's the next book project now that you got this?
2: Well, the only thing I've thought about, and I haven't done much on it, but I I am curious about writing a book about growing up evangelical. Yep. Um that's been on my mind for a while. So that awesome. Could well,
0: well, John Ward, one of the uh, one of the most thoughtful, uh, best journalists in town, a good friend. Is good that guy. a compliment? I don't know. You know, it's a low. It's it, it's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty low re- blow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. But uh, congratulations. Uh, the, the the title again, Camelot's End, uh, Kennedy versus Carter in the fight that broke the Democratic Party and. I think that all of our millions of listeners of Powerhouse Politics, I strongly, strongly recommend. If they just Uh, buy
2: two copies each, two copies each, we are, we are,
0: we are golden. Uh, So that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. For Rick Klein, Trevor Hastings, our senior executive producer, Avery Miller, and Angie Yak, Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.